Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. Hello and welcome to Truthiverse and part two of the Afterlife series. This episode we dive into OBEs, that is out-of-body experiences, and adventures on the so-called astral plane. This is a little snapshot or peek through the keyhole into the research and writing I've been doing over many years now on this and other related subjects. And there's some very interesting material here, so let's not delay, let's get right into it. The out-of-body experience, and I'm going to refer to that in short as OBE, is traditionally referred to in occultism as astral projection. Essentially, it's a lucid experience of functional consciousness separated from the physical body. Not in a pure non-dualistic state or unity consciousness, but very much in the realm of dualistic subject-object perception, i.e. I'm here, you're there, as opposed to I am everything and we are one. So duality is retained. Such experiences are on record throughout the world over centuries. As Margaret Waite tells us, these accounts begin with the crude scratchings on prehistoric caves and continue on the very graphic murals found in the temples of early India and in Egyptian excavations. The Bible is full of accounts of astral journeys and all through the literature, folklore and early history of the world since biblical times, there are continuing reports of these strange, eerie, but at the same time exalted otherworld explorations, often bringing with them veridical evidence. In other words, the astral journey is a global phenomenon and has probably occurred for as long as humans have existed. Everyone has the capacity and actually uses it in their sleep whether they realize it or not, which I get into in much more depth in the book too. Paul confirms this dual nature of man's in his first epistle to the Corinthians, saying, there is a natural physical body and there is a spiritual body. There are many so-called paranormal aspects of Christian doctrine that could be subsumed under a more insightful and mature occult scientific framework than the general exoteric Christian dogma. According to Waite in The Mystic Sciences, Dr. Eugene E. Bernard, one-time professor of psychology at North Carolina State University, concluded from his studies of astral projection that at least one out of every hundred people has experienced some form of OB travel. In 1952, Dr. Hornell Hart had 155 students at Duke University fill out questionnaires and found that over 30% of them had some experience, either direct or indirect, with astral projection. Hart held the view that the brain expresses consciousness, but does not generate it, and that it can observe and act at long distances from the brain. He was absolutely correct, as readers of my first book, The Green Illusion, well know. Over the course of about a decade, British geologist Dr. Robert Crookle collected and wrote about 750 cases of OBEs. His first book on the subject, The Study and Practice of Astral Projection, was published in 1960. Crookle studied each case looking for commonalities that might yield greater understanding of the phenomenon. He identified six characteristics that applied to all the OBEs he scrutinized. Number one, the subjects feel that they are leaving their bodies out of the top of their heads. Number two, the subjects black out for a second at the exact instant their astral and physical bodies separate. Number three, the subjects' astral bodies float above the physical bodies for a while before moving away. Number four, the astral bodies float again over the physical bodies before returning. Number five, the subjects black out again momentarily as their astral body returns. Number six, when the astral returns too quickly, the subjects' bodies are buffeted and jolted. Krugel saw the astral, or soul body, as consisting of a kind of matter, and I quote, but it is extremely subtle and may be described as superphysical. This so-called matter may be the postulated superparticles of string theory, according to J. Alfred. My own suspicion is that this akasic matter is what science would regard as antimatter. Maybe both are true. 
Philosopher Michael Grotto states in Experiencing the Next World Now that in an average class of about 20 students, usually around two of them will share that they had an OBE, so about 10%. The late pioneering ESP researcher Dr. Joseph Ryan is purported to have records of as many as 10,000 documented cases of OBEs received from people all over the world, regardless of age, sex, or economic status. A Dutch study from 1993 of 475 psychology students found that 22% of them reported a spontaneous OBE experience at some point, while 7% of them reported having two to five of them. A comparable American study reported spontaneous OBEs among 25% of students and 14% of the general population from the same city. According to Preston Dennett, himself a very experienced obe Many of the reported projectors are strongly left-brained, pragmatic, rational types. Businessmen, computer programmers, engineers, analysts, and accountants. Those types of people. To put things in perspective, if the scientific verification of the existence of the human energy fields is seen in view of traditional occult theories of consciousness, then science has long since proved the survival of human consciousness after death, and therefore its immortality. The reason is that the auric field is actually the mind field, and these fields occupy the time, space, or time domain or what Bohm might have called implicate order, as opposed to our explicate space-time. I went to great pains in Book 1 of The Grand Illusion to show that consciousness is fundamentally infinite and immortal and timeless by definition. The astral plane is, generally speaking, the reality, out-of-body experiences or astral projectors and many near-death experiences find themselves in. The name astral apparently comes from the medieval alchemist Paracelsus, which signifies starry. And it was deemed such because of the luminous appearance of astral matter, which was associated with the faster rate of its vibration. The astral plane is traditionally conceived of as the world of emotion, passion, and sensation. So it's through the astral body that feelings exhibit themselves to one who has clairvoyance functioning at the astral level. Therefore, the astral body continuously shifts in appearance as emotions change. It's important to grasp that other planes matter interpenetrates that of all the others. At Earth's surface, they're all coexistent with one another, although matter from the higher planes extends further away from the physical Earth than the lower. When someone rises from one plane or subplane to another, rather than moving through space, they're actually transferring the locus of their consciousness from one level to another. They're going deeper into their own psyche, in effect. The individual gradually becomes unresponsive to the vibrations of one density of matter and instead begins to resonate with a higher, more refined grade. The result is that one world and its inhabitants fade away from view, while a new one of a more exalted kind appears. According to clairvoyant and theosophist Charles Leadbeater, the background environment of the astral subplanes 4, 5, and 6 is actually the familiar physical world. OBE pioneer Robert Munro, physicist Michael Talbot, OBE expert Robert Bruce, and many others have also experienced and written of different zones within the lower astral that bear a close correspondence with the physical world. So we know that Leadbeater's general assessment has been confirmed in essence by fellow astral travelers. And the correspondence between the physical and the lower astral allows for confirmatory data to be received by the OBEers and remote viewers as well, and checked later on against experience in the physical world, which we'll come back to in a second. And Robert Bruce talks about something he calls the real-time zone. The real-time zone is technically a part of the astral, although best considered as a separate dimensional level, because it bears no direct relationship to the lower astral subplanes. Experience of the real-time zone is like being an invisible spectre in the physical world, according to Bruce. Such a state would be highly useful for remote viewing and parapsychological testing, as we'll see. According to Bruce, astral projectors in the real-time zone are slightly out of phase or decohered with the physical and the astral plane proper. So they exist at a higher vibrational level than physical space-time, but lower than the astral. 
They occupy a direct dimensional reflection of the physical universe as it is in real time. It's also worth noting that Robert Bruce agrees with the theosophical conception that the astral plane is divided into seven major subplanes or levels. And he says, each containing many subplanes and internal realms, the astral dimension spans the universe, but for all intents and purposes is totally non-spatial. So to the theoretical physicist, this makes it an imaginary aspect of phase space, probably at least two right-angled or ortho-rotations away from our reality. Despite this, according to Robert Bruce, an astral projector's physical location is usually consistent with where they perceive themselves to be in the physical world. He says that their movements can be tracked and ascertained if they are viewed with real-time sight, a type of clairvoyance. Basically, astral projectors exist as invisible points of consciousness, but usually perceive themselves as having bodily form, and they perceive themselves as connected to the physical body via an invisible energetic link called the silver cord. Charles Liebbeter comments on the astral plane's lower subdivisions and indicates the presence of an extra spatial dimension, and he explains that with astral vision, objects can be seen, and I quote, from all sides at once, and when we add to this that every particle in the interior of a solid body is as fully and clearly visible as those on the outside, it will be comprehended that under such conditions even the most familiar objects may at first be totally unrecognizable. This alteration of visual perception has been experienced and verified by other people, including Obeer, Preston Dennett. The reason for this is simply that the astral body, so-called, is really just a projection of the mind or a copy of the mind. In truth, the astral vehicle of consciousness is just a localization of awareness with no specialized physical sensory organs, and therefore it perceives holographically and holistically. The idea of holistic sensing in the West goes back at least as far as Aristotle. He said, The powers of sensation are established in the spirit, for the whole, through the whole of it, both sees and hears and is active in the rest of the senses and thus all the senses are in it. Hence, the OBE finds himself able to expand his field of vision, even to the extent that he perceives in every direction simultaneously. On top of this, Lee Beter adds that the astral sight renders visible various physical matter that the physical eyes do not see, apparently including aspects of Earth's atmospheric matter. Recognizing that the seer is forced to interpret data coming from a higher dimensional plane, where an object can be seen from all sides at once, in 3D terms, this presents us with some rudimentary sense of the potential difficulties involved. There is a translational or interpretive process between 3-space and 4-space that's not always 100% reliable. Most well-known OBE explorers started out as skeptics as a matter of fact, including both the late Robert Munro and the still-living Preston Dennett. Having developed the ability to project almost at will, Dennett went on to have over 1,000 conscious OBEs, causing him to write that he found the astral dimensions to be, quote, an utterly real place, richly detailed and teeming with life. For Dennett, the astral planes are like physical life, only more real, a common sentiment to be found among OBE explorers. Modern and contemporary OBEs all attest that we have strong sensory awareness on the astral planes, with the ability to discern heat, cold, different flavors and aromas, physical impact, pressure, speed, and so on and so forth. I cover this idea in detail in Book 2 of The Grand Illusion. Nearly 2,000 years ago, around the year 77 AD, Pliny the Elder, who lived from the year 23 to 79 AD, published his Natural History, a work devoted to various fields of human endeavor, including agriculture, botany, geography, painting, and zoology. It also features an account of what happened to an ancient OBE experiencer, and I quote, With reference to the soul of man, we find, among other instances, that the soul of Hermotinus of Clasimene was in the habit of leaving his body and wandering into distant countries, whence it brought back numerous accounts of various things, which could not have been obtained by anyone but a person who was present. The body, in the meantime, was left apparently lifeless, 
At last, however, his enemies, the Cantharidae, as they were called, burned the body, so that the soul on its return was deprived of its sheath, as it were. We can only wonder what other ancient and esoteric knowledge we lost through the destruction of the Alexandrian Library and other repositories systematically destroyed in the long process of Christian colonization of the world. I'm going to begin this next section with a relatively well-known veridical OBE report dating back to 1977. If you are a veteran of the field, you may know this story. Kimberly Clark, a hospital social worker in Seattle, Washington, did not take OBEs seriously until she encountered a coronary patient named Maria. Several days after being admitted to the hospital, Maria had a cardiac arrest and was quickly revived. Clark visited her later that afternoon, expecting to find her anxious over the fact that her heart had stopped. As she had expected, Maria was agitated, but not for the reason she had anticipated. Maria told Clark that she had experienced something very strange. After her heart had stopped, she suddenly found herself looking down from the ceiling and watching the doctors and the nurses working on her. Then something over the emergency room driveway distracted her, and as soon as she thought herself there, she was there. Next, Maria thought her way up to the third floor of the building and found herself eyeball to shoelace with a tennis shoe. It was an old shoe and she noticed that the little toe had worn a hole through the fabric. She also noticed several other details such as the fact that the lace was stuck under the heel. After Maria finished her account, she begged Clark to please go to the ledge and see if there was a shoe there so that she could confirm whether her experience was real or not. Skeptical but intrigued, Clark went outside and looked up at the ledge but saw nothing. She went up to the third floor and began going in and out of patients' rooms, looking through windows so narrow she had to press her face against the glass just to see the ledge at all. Finally, she found a room where she pressed her face against the glass and looked down and saw the tennis shoe. Still, from her vantage point, she could not tell if the little toe had worn a place in the shoe or if any of the other details Maria had described were correct. It wasn't until she retrieved the shoe that she confirmed Maria's various observations. The only way she would have had such a perspective was if she had been floating right outside and at very close range to the tennis shoe, states Clark, who has since become a believer in OBEs. It was very concrete evidence for me. This story is now part of near-death lore and made Clark a sort of celebrity in the NDE community. But on a personal level, it allowed her to better grasp her own NDE dating back seven years earlier, which he had previously dismissed as fantasy. Alright, let's look at a couple of additional instances of bilocation of consciousness and OB perception. Dr. Thomas Garrett, a therapeutic hypnotist, once treated a young man in a deeply depressed state over a quarrel with the object of his affections. Garrett placed the man in a deep trance and planted the suggestion that he would be able to travel astrally to the young lady's college dorm at Wellesley and find out how she really felt about him. After a moment of silence, the young man announced that he was in Wellesley and standing outside his girl's door. Dr. Garrett directed him to pass right through the closed door, which he evidently did because before long he was announcing in considerable elation that he was watching his girl at her desk writing a letter, and the letter was to him. What is she saying? Dr. Garrett asked. Slowly his patient repeated word for word what the girl was writing in the note, an apology for the cause of their quarrel and a plea for forgiveness. Dr. Garrett wrote down every word, and when he brought the subject out of the trance, he gave him a copy of the contents of the letter, which he would not actually receive for another day or so. When the letter came, it was exactly as it had been worded earlier. Surely this is convincing evidence of remote perception, if not full-blown out-of-body existence. During the early days of his research participation at the American Society for Psychical Research, the late government-paid remote viewer Ingo Swan had an unexpected and spontaneous success of the informal variety. He was rigged up with electrodes to a dinograph for an experiment. He said, after being hooked up with the electrodes, but while waiting for Janet to deal with the temperamental dinograph, my OOB perceptions seem to have gone through the wall into the street outside. There was snow on the ground, but there was a woman going by dressed in a ridiculous orange coat. This had been something of a spontaneous event. While waiting for the experiment to commence, I was just suddenly outside of the building, in a pop kind of way. 
I had made no deliberate attempt in this regard, nor had even thought about doing so. This event was so unusual that I wanted immediate feedback as to whether there was an orange coat in the street. I tore off the electrode leads, jumped into Janet's room, explained as I dragged her down the stairs to the building's front door. Once outside, we were just in time to see the orange coat turning the corner onto Central Park West. This wasn't Swan's first OBE. As a feisty two-year-old, he was taken to a hospital for a tonsillectomy. Frightened by the experience, young Ingo fought with the nurses and the doctor. Suddenly a nurse appeared with a half-filled balloon. Challenging him, I bet you can't blow this up further, she said. Taking the challenge on, Ingo began blowing on the balloon and quickly realised he had been deceived. The balloon was filled with ether, and each inhalation brought him closer and closer to unconsciousness. An ether mask was finally put on his face, but the enraged youth found his mind slipping into a very different viewpoint. As he looked down on the operation as an observer, he saw the doctor place a cutting instrument down his throat and heard him mutter shit when he accidentally cut Swan's tongue. He saw the doctor take his two small tonsils from his mouth and place them in a small bottle, which a nurse placed behind some rolls of tissue on a counter. He was aware as the doctor sewed up the slice in his tongue and as he began to regain consciousness, he said, I want my tonsils. A nurse told him that his tonsils had already been thrown away, but young Ingo replied emphatically, no you didn't. Pointing to the rolls of tissue, he astounded everyone present by proclaiming, You put them behind those over there. Give them to me. Mama, the doctor said shit when he cut my tongue. One can only wonder how Ingo's mum reacted to this. Moving on now to Dr. Chris Humphrey. Humphrey has experimented with hypnotically induced OBE and learned it's possible for people OBE to see the human aura, because his wife, who was an excellent hypnotic subject, did just that. He tells us, I was conducting a group hypnotic experiment in Manhattan, Kansas in 1970 or 1971, and my little experiment caused her to pop out of her body into a kind of bilocated experience. One point of view was up in the corner of the room, the other was in her body. From her OBE point of view, she saw a brilliant aura of gold and orange around me, but not around anyone else. The explanation is the suggestion I had made to draw yourself into the middle of your head. Only later did I discover that this is one way of inducing the OBE. Of course, the instruction would also result in drawing in the aura. This explains why his wife did not see anyone else's aura. They had all followed the instruction to draw it into their heads. This is the minefield being pulled into the head, if you like. Biochemist and OBE author Dr. Don DeGracia shares an intriguing story that came tantalizingly close to offering him objective confirmation of one particular OBE that he had, in which he encountered a friend, Tim. After working hard to get the dazed Tim into a lucid state in his astral dream world, DeGrazia recounts that he showed him how to fly and they thereby set about exploring the city that they were in. DeGrazia tells us, I kept reminding him to call me when he woke up. Eventually I lost him and continued with my projection. I woke up straight from my projection and it was about 11am. And then, within minutes of waking up, Tim called me. I asked him how long he had been awake and he said he just woke up, which meant that he really had been sleeping at the same time I was projecting. He couldn't remember anything, but he said he had an urge to call me. So DeGrazia's instruction to Tim to call him registered in the level of the subconscious mind we call the astral body. And thus, he actually did go and call him despite not knowing why consciously that he had the urge. This is another interesting little challenge to our egocentric concept of conscious free will choice. Numerous projectors have discussed their interactions with sleeping people on the astral plane, apparently finding more often than not that astral sleepers tend to be disappointingly imperceptive of the environment and their own activities and potentials. The late OBE pioneer Sylvan Muldoon attempted a series of unannounced sleep state OB appearances to a young lady that he knew. The morning following a spontaneous attempt to appear to her in his sleep, he received a phone call from her, in which she stated that he appeared to her the night before, rather more vividly than usual, 
and she had immediately been seized with the urge to write automatically, the result being a verse of poetry. The poem consisted of the opening lines of the song, When Sparrows Build, fully accurate with the exception of just one word. A couple of days earlier they had discussed this very song and Muldoon had promised to get a copy to her sometime. This is indeed a strange way to get a copy to her, but nonetheless compelling and suggestive. In her own dreams, Helen Brooks experienced this astral projection, or exteriorization as she called it, and it allowed her to make some interesting observations. Hovering over some sleeping children, she observed a misty vapour emanating from the tops of their heads. She tells us, On peering closer I was able to see what they were doing astrally, for reflected in the vapour were the activities of their astral bodies. This is yet another sign of the basic holographic nature of the auric field. Now let's look at a classic example of a dream OBE involving a married couple and an independent witness which was reported in 1863 by a Dr. Wilmot of Bridgeport, Connecticut. He tells us, I sailed from Liverpool for New York on the steamer City of Limerick. On the evening of the second day out, a severe storm began which lasted for nine days. Upon the night of the eighth day, for the first time, I enjoyed refreshing sleep. Toward morning, I dreamed that I saw my wife, whom I had left in the US, come to the door of the stateroom clad in her nightdress. At the door, she seemed to discover that I was not the only occupant in the room, hesitated a little, then advanced to my side, stooped down and kissed me and quietly withdrew. Upon waking, I was surprised to see my fellow passenger leaning upon his elbow and looking fixedly at me. You're a pretty fellow, he said, at length, to have a lady come and visit you this way. I pressed him for an explanation and he related what he had seen while awake, lying on his berth. It exactly corresponded with my dream. The day after landing I went to Watertown, Connecticut where my children and my wife were visiting her parents. Almost her first question when we were back alone was, did you receive a visit from me a week ago Tuesday? It would be impossible, I said. Tell me what makes you think so. My wife then told me that on account of the severity of the weather, she had been extremely anxious about me. On the night mentioned above, she had lain awake for a long time thinking about me and about 4 o'clock in the morning it seemed to her that she went out to seek me. She came at length to my stateroom. Tell me, she said, do you ever have staterooms like the one I saw where the upper berth extends further back than the under one? A man was in the upper berth looking right at me and for a moment I was afraid to go in, but soon I went up to the side of your berth, bent down and kissed you and embraced you and then went away. The description given by my wife of the steamship was correct in all particulars, though she had never seen it. It's particularly interesting in this case that Wilmot's roommate on the ship actually visually perceived his wife's astral form as she visited him in their shared dream state. And on top of that, she offered accurate details regarding the steamer despite having never seen it. Veridical tri-party astral events like this, though rarely reported, do go to show that consciousness outside the body has an objective quality to it. These are not merely fantasies inside someone's skull. It's also interesting to note that Wilmot was perceiving his wife's visit whilst asleep and this is the reason he initially supposed it was just a dream. Alas, it was no dream, and in his astrally focused state, his consciousness detected her astral presence. And meanwhile, the fellow who was sharing his stateroom aboard the ship actually consciously witnessed his wife's astral form enter the room and do the actions we just described. Pretty amazing indeed. The Society for Psychical Research has documented some very interesting cases of out-of-body travels and perceptions, Myers in particular documented the old case of a former member of the London Stock Exchange, who was identified only as SHB, and who William Walker Atkinson puts it, possessed the power of voluntary awakening of astral sight in other people by way of his appearance to them, or appearing to them. SHB told the Society, One Sunday night in November 1881, I was in Kildare Gardens when I willed very strongly that I would visit in the spirit two lady friends, the Mrs. X who were living three miles off in Hogarth Road. I willed that I should do this at one o'clock in the morning, and having willed it, I went to sleep. 
Next Thursday, when I first met my friends, the elder lady told me that she woke up and saw my apparition advancing to her bedside. She screamed and woke her sisters who also saw me. The report also includes the signed statement of the ladies giving the time of the appearance and the details thereof. Miss Verity, the witness, said in her statement, I distinctly saw Mr. B in my room about one o'clock. I was perfectly awake and was much terrified. I woke my sister by screaming and she saw the apparition herself. A third sister called in from another room of the house corroborated the events. The full report can be found in Edmund Gurney's Phantasms of the Living, Volume 1. Discussing SHB's impressive efforts, Myers wrote of the projections as the most extraordinary achievement of the human will. What can lie further outside any known capacity than the power to cause a semblance of oneself to appear at a distance? Myers felt we should now view the subliminal self as the, quote, central and potent current, the most truly identifiable with the man himself. The spirit has shown itself in part dissociated from the organism. To what point may its dissociation go? It has shown some independence, some intelligence, some permanence. To what degree may it conceivably attain? He had become convinced that of all vital phenomena, this astral projection ability is, quote, the most significant, this self-projection is the one definite act which it seems as though man might perform equally well before and after bodily death. Thus, over a century ago, for all intents and purposes, OBE astral projection was proved using a thoroughly empirical approach. On a personal note, one of my very first OBE attempts many years ago was partially successful. I experienced the distinct sensation of gradually separating from my body as if a more ethereal body was peeling itself away. Accompanying this were some almost overwhelming auditory phenomena. What started as a soft low rumble became an incredibly loud hybrid-like sound of a massive drum roll combined with the sound of an oncoming train. That's the only way I can really describe it. The sound effects I describe here are something that the late veteran OBE Robert Munro had also experienced and wrote about. Other reports record similar auditory phenomena. Clairvoyant and author Cindy Dale identifies a train noise that occurs during the death process. This sound is, as she puts it, the fallout of the instantaneous shift of energy between body and soul. One event that occurred soon after I moved to Melbourne, age 23, while living temporarily with a friend, offered a little bit more success, albeit totally unintentionally. My friend was away overnight, so I slept on his bed rather than on the futon. As I was shifting consciousness states, I suddenly detached from my body and proceeded to bounce off the wall to my left, then the next wall, and then the next, bouncing right back into my body, having completed a round trip of the room. Apparently at that point my subconscious curiosity had been sated and I was then ready to drift off to sleep. I have made no conscious effort whatsoever to do any kind of out-of-body exercises. Author and occultist David Conway writes of a man he knew who had been in a motorcycle accident. The physical trauma, which wasn't actually severe, caused him to experience an OBE. At this moment, he thought about his wife and immediately found himself at his home watching her making pastry with great clarity, a clock on the wall showing the time as 20 past 4. Returning home, he learned his wife had been frantically telephoning local hospitals and the police, having, quote, glimpsed him in the kitchen. And this is what's known as a classic crisis apparition. When he appeared to her as she was preparing the weekend's baking for the oven, he appeared to be shaken and bandaged. Her vision happened at 20 past 4. This was the same time that he observed on the clock in his out-of-body condition. After-death communications, or ADCs, which we covered in part 1 of this Afterlife series, can happen in the OB state, more easily than during physical waking consciousness, because the incoming soul does not have to lower its vibrational state to the near physical in order to have an interaction with us. They only have to meet us on the astral frequencies, which for them is pretty easy. One woman's ADC began as she was sleeping and realized she was looking down at her body on the bed. And I quote, The real me was being drawn up and up. I was being drawn higher. I was above the house looking down on the trees. I went higher and higher and all of a sudden, Sean was there. 
It was very bright, but there were no earthly surroundings. I had a floating feeling like we were suspended in space. My son and I hugged each other. It was so intensely joyful. It was just overwhelming. There were no words, just this great joy and the fact that Sean was really still alive. I knew my son was alright and that he still cared about me. He was aware of my life, but he also had a life of his own. His was an unrestricted life with unrestricted freedom and knowledge far beyond what we have here on Earth. Then I was back in my body on the bed and I was awake. I thought to myself, this existence seems more like a dream. That experience seems more real than life. It was the most comforting and the most real experience I've ever had. Other after-death communications happen on high vibrational levels or planes in occult terms. Another woman in the Guggenheim's database details being taken from her body by an angelic entity while injured in hospital following a car accident that killed her two sons. In her OB state, she finds herself in a beautiful meadow, and I quote, It was the prettiest emerald green with the most vibrant, clear blue sky. The colours are hard to describe because they're not like the colours we have here. Here in this realm, her two boys were running and playing with other boys and girls, vibrant and healthy. The being instructed her, Your sons are fine and you will see them again. Do not worry. The experience ended as she was thrust back into her body. The realm she experienced is known in spiritualism as the Summerland and is not one of the lower nearby astral planes. Where it fits in the afterlife scheme of things is discussed in depth in Book 2 of The Grand Illusion. Now let's go to shared out-of-body experiences. Joint adventures in the astral virtual reality. By the mid-1980s, an unanticipated side of remote viewing was noticed by the government-funded American sci-spies. Someone was looking back at them as they worked. The Sci-Spies unit first became aware of this strange situation from Robert Monroe, who had his first OBE back in 1958 at the age of 43. According to the Sci-Spies, the Monroe Institute was used to screen potential remote viewers and to acquaint them with psychic experiences. Monroe himself was experimenting with out-of-body and other altered states of consciousness when he realized that three unknown people were with him, and trying to probe his mind. One of these three was a woman who seemed particularly powerful. This being an odd experience to Monroe, and that's saying something, he felt vulnerable and therefore enlisted the Sci-Spies for help. Investigative author Jim Mars reports that having been alerted to the existence of foreign remote viewers, the Sci-Spies joined in a game of psychic cat and mouse with the other side, pursuing each other and even developing a sense of camaraderie in the process. We thought of them more as an opposing team than an enemy. American Sci-Spy Mel Riley said that the situation became bizarre, even for them, so they didn't speak about it outside the unit. Evidently, a tacit agreement was formed between both sets of Sci-Spies to not alert their respective bosses of this incredible and unexpected situation for fear of negative repercussions. Following unsuccessful early searches for their Russian counterparts, the American Sci-Spies realized that the extra sensors were not only operating in Russia, but also the USA. Hoping to remedy the situation, the Sci-Spies eventually got around to mounting an offensive against their opponents. According to several unit members, the Sci-Spies ran a series of remote viewing sessions against the interlopers. They first remote viewed Robert Munro's out-of-body event to see what was happening, and sure enough, they quickly realized that three people were non-physically present, observing. One of them was a woman. Munro had gotten the impression that her name was Inga Arnett. This was confirmed by the Sci-Spies. An entire six-man Sci-Spy team was thus assembled to concentrate on the female Soviet psychic in a coordinated group offensive. Armed with the location coordinates, the Sci-Spies psychically slipped away into the astral and assembled in the Soviet compound, aware of each other only as ghostly, translucent figures, though the numbers were comforting. Soon the interloper was found. According to Riley, the woman became very upset when confronted by the team because she had never expected this attack. With the team collectively viewing her, she lost all concentration and was rendered ineffective as a remote viewer. That was mission accomplished. Victorious, the Sci-Spies team looked at each other as it was time to return to the physical, and then watched each other shoot into the air one by one, fading from sight. It was a spectacle that none had seen before, because until then all sessions had been conducted individually. 
Of particular interest to us in this case are the following elements, not strictly based in remote viewing but extending into other areas. For instance, some remote viewing sessions appear to be indiscernible from regular OBEs. It's not unreasonable to assume that these experiences are occurring on the so-called astral plane, or more specifically what Robert Bruce calls the real-time zone, where you can observe the real physical world without suffering the bizarre distortions and anomalies that often manifest in the astral plane proper. Also, the remote viewers could perceive each other as ghost-like translucent humanoids during the sessions, mental projections of their familiar physical form, or residual self-image as the Matrix terms it. It can't be denied, and this is speaking conservatively, that a form of bilocation of consciousness is happening with remote viewing and out-of-body experiences. Within the philosophical framework of monistic idealism, such a functional bilocation of consciousness is not only unremarkable, since consciousness is rightly seen as the ground of all existence, but to be expected. No matter where we go, our broader consciousness and all the information in the holographic omniverse is already there to begin with. Physicist Tom Campbell, who worked with Munro in the pioneering early days and helped him develop the research technology, does not believe neurochemistry has anything to do with the OBE. He also believes that physical reality too is a simulation, not unlike the virtual realities of the astral mind worlds we've been exploring here. He subscribes to the kind of holographic model I outlined in Book 1 of The Grand Illusion. Our senses interact with a kind of quantum hologram projected into our minds by what he calls metaphorically the big computer. Until objects in physical matter reality are observed, they exist only in potential, a la the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. What we call reality is a Mobius strip twisting back to look at itself. And I hope you've enjoyed this installment of the Afterlife series. Please do share it with interested friends. And full citations and references will be found in Book 2 of The Grand Illusion. This is Brendan D. Murphy signing out. I'll see you next time. Take care. It wouldn't be possible for me to share this work with you without the Freedom Era having helped me reverse my previously woeful money situation. TFE is a community that shows you how to make a living online through high commission sales with automation. To find out how we do it, check out the free training at brendandmurphy.com freedom. I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far, so if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the censors after Facebook, Facebook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at truth.network, it's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.